Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. to Democracy-ish. I am Danielle Moody. And I'm Wajahat Ali. And watch, we have a special guest with us. I'm very excited about the guest that we are bringing to Democracy-ish. Please do the honors of introducing our guest. All right, before I introduce our special guest, oftentimes on this podcast, you guys know that we complain all the time that Democrats bring a pencil to a knife fight. They don't message, they don't communicate, they have the policies, but they don't reach out. Oftentimes, they throw themselves under the bus unnecessarily. And my God, Democrats, the Republicans are imploding. You have a message, you have a platform, just communicate it. What can they do? And we get really depressed. And then Danielle drinks and I drink chai, <laughs> and then we retire home. But today, listen, we're about solutions as well. I'm very excited to introduce our guest, Anat Schenker Osorio, who I'm very proud of my pronunciation as well. And the fancy schmancy uh, uh, LinkedIn profile is that she's the host of Words to Win By podcast, the principal of ASO Communications. She has written for the New York Times, The Atlantic. She's the author of Don't Buy It, The Trouble with Talking Nonsense About the Economy. But what she's also done is the research and the work for messages that actually connect with voters and inspire the democratic base. Her race class narrative, which you guys might have heard about, that's what she did with Ian Haney Lopez and Heather McGee. Yes, Heather McGee, the author of the best-selling The Sum of Us. She came up with that research. She directed it about what narratives that could actually attract black, brown, and white voters to actually vote for democratic policies that are popular. So welcome, Anat. You will give us all of our wisdom and help save democracy on today's show for the next 35 minutes. Thank you so much. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's a very light lift. 30, I don't need 35. I mean, clearly I've been killing it because America's <laughs> going great. It's going great. It's great-ish. It's great-ish. It's great-ish. It's great, it's great, it's great um, yeah. Please. That introduction, I just want to say, so, so kind. And I just want to be clear that the race class narrative was lots of people's work. I Just take credit for it. Just, just take credit for it. No, just, no, just... no. That is not happening. Heather, Ian, the incredible folks at Demos, SEIU, my colleagues that we make the future. So I just, I just want to set the record straight and not overblow. Yeah. So, you know, before we get into what we, we really want to talk about some of these key issues that we keep bringing up on the show, voting rights, you know, defund the police, refund the police. What's the right message? You throw the squad under the bus. But before we do that, 
Let's actually start with the race class narrative. Please. What sure. is it and how was it successful for Democrats? Yeah. Thank you for asking. So the race class narrative is an answer to the exhausting and unnecessary perennial question, are we doing turnout? Are we doing persuasion? Which ironically is in and of itself a dog whistle for mm. are we actually going to spend money on, engage, care about black voters and other voters of color, unmarried women, uh, LGBTQ folks, basically the core of the progressive base, or are we going to put our eggs in the trying to persuade suburban white people basket, Chet, right? Travis, Kimberly, Chad. Exactly. And so this question that has haunted the Democratic Party forever and ever and ever, it seems to never go away. It's like mm -hmm. a permanent jobs program for me. It's also a source of permanent frustration is a false choice because in point of fact, turnout is persuasion. And mm. by definition, if your words don't spread, they don't work. If no one hears your message, it's not persuading them because they didn't hear it. And so if your choir won't sing from the same songbook, then the congregation, i.e. the middle, is not going to hear the joyful noise, let alone go out and convert new adherents. And so what the race class narrative is, is it is a full-throated message that connects together the issues of race and class, is race forward because, hi, race neutral is not a thing. Race neutral has never been a thing in American politics because the right is constantly and relentlessly race baiting. It is the only message that they have. And whether it is old school, quote unquote, welfare queens or newer permutations like the magical immigrant who is both taking your job and not working. That's me. Exactly. <laughs> I figured finally now we know who it is. It's easier <laughs> to treat me. if we can at least yeah. isolate it. What the race class narrative does is it presents a full-throated appeal, like I said, to issues of both race and class. And importantly, it narrates the dog whistle. It calls out the other side for what it is they are doing with wedge issues like critical race theory, or it's not always racial, right? Or with trans youth or with abortion. They can use all sorts of things to create these kind of quote-unquote culture wars. And it makes a case for cross-racial solidarity. If you want, I can tell you a race class narrative message so it's less abstract. I mean, I want to I want to offer one. Right. So please do. Because on this show, we talk a lot um, be, uh, about Virginia, about the Virginia gubernatorial race, because Wajis uh, lives in Virginia. Uh, I lived in Arlington for many, many years. Um, so we know this area. Right. We know that the state would turn blue during Obama years. We held on for about a good 12 and then blew it up um, just recently. Recently, with the election of Governor Yunkin, who used right with his lovely vest, um, one of the the right's new uh, battering rams for the culture wars, which is critical race theory, something that we have talked about on this show that is not taught in anyone's K through 12. It is only taught in selective uh, uh, law schools, and that is as an elective. But somehow they were able to turn critical race theory into parental choice. And guess mm. what? Democrats often for it absolutely nothing to the counter narrative. So I, I, I want to use that as a very real example, because 
again, we talk about what happened in Virginia being foreshadowing for the country and wondering still now months removed from that debacle as we had eight months into midterms, where what would be the right mm. counter messaging for the rights critical race theory that we know doesn't exist and just throwing up our hands and saying it doesn't exist in the shape and form that they are offering clearly isn't enough. Yeah. And so that message, not copy edited, but would be no matter what we look like, where we come from or what our zip code, most of us want our children to learn the truth of our past so they can understand our present and come together to create a better future. That's the first values-based assertion mm -hmm. with a reference to race. Second sentence. Mm -hmm. But today, a handful of politicians, or but today, these Republicans, or but today, Glenn Youngkin, if we're still in the election, want to divide us from each other, spreading lies about what our teachers are teaching, hoping we'll look the other way while they endanger our children's lives by opposing masks and vaccines and exposing them to live shooter drills or, God forbid, actual bullets. Mm -hmm. They hope that if we look the other way, they can continue to decimate our public schools and divide us up by race and by place. Most of us know that all of our children have the courage to learn where we have come from, and we want an education for every child as good as we would want for our own. So it's that. It's basically, here's what we're for, and that is true across race, across place, across where you live. Here's what they're doing, and here's why. Ascribing motivation, saying not just this is what they're doing, but they're doing it in order to hide, in mm. order to get away with the rest of their agenda. And then coming back to that call for cross-racial solidarity, that's essentially the architecture of the race-class narrative message. But recently, the, 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 the majority actually seemed to agree with everything that you said. They did the recent poll in Virginia, and the majority yeah. seemed to agree with everything you just said. What happened in Virginia during the, the race is that the dog whistle terrified so many parents, not just mm -hmm. white parents. It mm -hmm. was a majority white women, yes, but also some black and brown parents and Asian parents, right, from upper class neighborhoods. They were like, oh, my God, our kid's going to be Marxist and he's going to be and then my son's going to become a woman and they have no genders and they're going to teach them to hate white people. And there was no response from Terry McAuliffe. And then on the on the dais, I remember during the debates, he just gave them this talking point that they ran with on the um on the uh, 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 for the ads, and then they said, "Oh, he's like Trump. He's like Trump," and then there was just enough, or not just enough, for people to switch over, like two percentage points. And so, when you said the choir in the congregation, it seems that the congregation is scared of the choir because mm -hmm. the choir is black and brown. So, like, how do you connect the two? Because what you just said resonates with the polls, didn't resonate with the election. Yeah. So first of all, it didn't resonate with the election because it wasn't actually said. Mm. Right. <laughs> right. So you well, one, one would have to actually have heard a Democrat actually come out and say those very clear words that you said in order to have a counter narrative.
Yes. And and I will tell you that in the places that did operationalize the race class narrative during that November election, we won our school board races. We mm. won school board races in places people are not talking about. We won in Kansas. We won in Minnesota. Mm. My memory is not good enough to remember the rest of the list, but I did do a podcast episode on this. We won school board races in which the candidates in very hard circumstances, right? I am not talking about, you know, the Bay Area where I live. I'm talking about challenging places that are very, very, very white in many cases. When people made a full-throated case for what they are for, look, it's just the first law of persuasion. If you want people to come to your cause, you need to be attractive. Mm. If you are not for and passionate, something, right? and passionate. you need to be passionate, you need to be attractive, and you need to present an origin story for the trouble, the challenges, the upsetness that people are seeing in their lives. It is divide and conquer is the oldest trick in the book because it works, right? Machiavelli yep. wrote about it. It has been the longest serving political trick that there is the world over. We see it not just in the US, we see it with Brexit, we see it with Orban, we see it with Bolsonaro, on and on and on. And that is because if you do not explain to people why it is they feel like, and yeah, I mean white people, but I don't just mean white people. It's unbelievable how efficacious these dog whistles are across yep. racial groups. Let's yep. not kid ourselves, to be honest. I mean, Anad, can I so, can I jump I, in real quick? Mm -hmm. I mean, just mention in Virginia real quick, and 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 not to slow your roll, but you can add on to this. I was going to mention with CRT, and I'm glad you led with it. I cannot tell you. How many Democrats, I'm talking about blue voters who still voted, by the way, for uh, McAuliffe, said to me, they've gone too far. The left has gone too far. All our kids are going to be trans. Oh, my God, they're all atheists. All our kids are going to be gay. Like I heard this from blue voters who are like both sides. I don't know. And so that dog whistle worked even on Democrats, but they still voted for blue. But just enough said, OK, OK, I got to save my child. Well, sorry. I I I want to I want to say one other thing too, though, which is the fact that when we are talking about these dog whistles, I personally believe, and I, I won't speak for Watch, but I personally believe that the Democrats use dog whistles as well, right? Like we we absolutely um are afraid to 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 watch this earlier part, afraid of the choir to be able to offer up the counter narrative because I don't believe that they want to upset their their the white votes that they are going after. So if I offer a counter narrative that seems like I'm too much in the camp of my actual base, right? right? Then that peel off, the peel off percentage points of the white voters who haven't voted for us since the 1950s anyway are definitely going to be stone cold in the Republican uh in the Republican category instead of just admitting that that's where they are, that's where they have been. So I don't I I guess for me it's like how how do you present a counter narrative to a group that's afraid of their own base and afraid of seeming too woke, too conscious, too, you know, too diverse? From The New Yorker staff writer Vincent Cunningham, a keenly observed novel of a young black man searching for his place in the world amidst a moment of historic change. Great Expectations is about David's 18 months working for the senator's presidential campaign, 
Along the way, David meets a myriad of people who raise a set of questions. Questions of history, art, race, religion, and fatherhood that force David to look at his own life anew and come to terms with his identity as a young black man and father in America. Inspired by the author's experiences working on Obama's 2008 presidential campaign, Cunningham uses a political campaign as his narrative backbone. Great Expectations will be one of the talked about novels of the year, Colin McCann. Great Expectations is available wherever books are sold. Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah. There is a fundamental misapprehension that is baked into, sadly, message testing, polling, and political consultancy, which is intensely frustrating. And that misunderstanding of public perception is that these middle of the road, centrist, swing, Mm -hmm. they get labeled in different ways. And I want to be clear that they operate in one dimension as swing voters and in a slightly different dimension as what I call ideological persuadables. Way more people are ideologically persuadable, way fewer people are swing voters because partisanship Mm. is a hell of a drug. Mm. And once you layer over, I'm team red or I'm team blue, that's way fewer people who are going to maybe switch teams. But when you're talking about ideologically persuadable, like I could think this way about wages, I could think that way. I could think this way about public education, I could think that way. That's what I mean by ideologically persuadable. We have been taught that what those people want is a, quote, middle of the road solution. They want some sort of centrist thing. That is actually not true. The research does not bear that out. Those people are what I call the good point people because they go like this. Good point, but also good point. Right. But yeah, good point. (laughs) And so when we ask them, to what extent do you agree, disagree? Talking about race is absolutely essential and moves our country forward. Around 70% of them say yes. When we ask those people, talking about race is divisive and sets our country backwards. Around 70% of those people say yes. In other words, good point, but also good good point. point. (laughs) What they hear repeated most frequently becomes, quote unquote, common sense and Mm. the way the world works and what everyone believes. There is no other way to explain why it is that in the summer of 2020, in the reawakening of the BLM protests and the thwarted racial reckoning that we were supposed to have had, which, by the way, didn't actually happen. It was just a conversation. And that was apparently enough to upset people, just the mere mention of it. But I digress. 
the radical change in public opinion around what we need to do with policing, uh, increase in support for Black Lives Matter, increase in support for reform, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When you look at the rapidity of change around marriage equality, which at a societal level happened in, you know, a nanosecond, right? Why is that? It's because social proof is real. People do the thing they think their kind of person does. And so when they see on TV a bunch of suburban moms out protesting, they're like, okay, I guess suburban moms protest. When they see a bunch of people with love as love and changing their little avatar to a rainbow when people are still on Facebook, they're like, I guess this is what people like me think. And so what the right wing has understood forever is that unless you get your base out performing their beliefs, wearing the red hat, if you will, then that is what persuades the middle because the middle is by definition non-ideological. If they were ideological, they wouldn't be the middle. They would have a fixed position the way that the three of us do. And so when they're observing in their environment, it looks like people like me think this sort of a thing. And so the fear of the base that you are holding up, which is so frustrating and true, like I'm not denying what mm -hmm, you're saying, mm -hmm. but it just goes against everything that we know about persuasion. It goes against Madison Avenue using, quote unquote, brand ambassadors, because again, if your words don't spread, they don't work. And that is actually how you persuade the middle. It's not by having people who are labeled Democratic Party or who are labeled NAACP or who are labeled Planned Parenthood. It's by having your neighbor, your cousin, your high school friend be the one to say it to you. Can, can I and say that's this? why, yeah. No, please. I know that was that was fantastic, and it explains why, Anat, in the in the absence of any proactive messaging, the the suburban Democratic voters that I mentioned who were terrified of CRT, that's the only narrative they had. It's the only Correct. narrative it's they the had. It's the only one yeah. they heard. Because <laughs> all they heard was Trump. Well, he's not Trump. Oh, my kid is going to become a transgender activist who hates white people, right? And then also, I want to connect the dots here then to to defund the police. In the aftermath of George Floyd's murder. There was a groundswell of support, as we know, at least the majority. All right. And the majority wanted to reform the police. Uh, Democrats did not run on defund the police. There was the squad. There's six congressmen in the House, not Joe Biden, not Kamala Harris, not the DNC. No one ran on defund the police. Republicans were very successful, as we remember, in the 2020 elections to label Democrats as defund the police and anti-police as they killed a police officer at the January 6th violent insurrection. At the State of the Union address, Joe Biden did not mention black lives. And not only did he say reform the police, which I think he should have, he said fund the police. So our, and we've been critical of it because what we're saying is you are losing your black voters who they might not be with defund the police, but who the hell is asking for fund the police? What are we missing? So that's a big sigh. You just yeah, said it. It's, it's a good one. <laughs> It's a big sigh, uh, you know, at the risk of getting too real for a moment here. Get real. I, I'm going to give you the messaging answer because that's what I'm here to do. And that's what I do for a living. And that's what I test. And I'm an empiricist and all the rest of it. And in reality, and so I promise I will do that one second. 
But in reality, the fact that we're even having this conversation Mm -hmm. is just so morally repugnant to me. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's absolutely disgusting to me that we have to have, and I hope this is clear. I'm not impugning you. I'm saying you're, you're correctly responding. We do have to have it. The notion that police who are spending, I don't know how many hundreds of millions of dollars in a city like Take Chicago just to pay off their wrongful death and all of the illegal things that we've done. The notion that we are even talking about this as a strategic conversation is so disgusting. I mean, it's literally what Martin Luther King Jr. wrote about from Letter from a Birmingham Deal. So I just want to like say that for a second because I am going to talk about the messaging now. I just want you to know that like it weighs so heavily on me that we have to approach this as a like, what's the strategic thing to do? How are we going to engage our base and how are we going to get to 50% plus one? But at the end of the day, that's my actual job is to win shit. Mm -hmm. And so from the perspective of winning shit, Fund the police does not make sense as a message. First of all, the disavowal of defund the police, regardless of how you actually feel about it, let's just take the simple, like the first step one. Anytime you negate a frame, you evoke it. So when Nixon gets on TV and says, I am not a crook, we all think he's a crook. When Chris Christie says, I am not a bully, right? So when Democrats say, I do not want to defund the police, that of course calls to mind that they do. Okay, so we know that lesson. We know we're not supposed to negate all of that. Supposedly fund the police is them having learned that lesson. And so now they're no longer engaged in negation. Well, guess what? When you say fund the police, what you have done is you have agreed that the conversation we want to have is about police. And when you frame up for people that, we need more police, what you do for these ideologically persuadable people is you send them into fear mode, which Mm -hmm. they already are for understandable reasons, because there is a serious thing about crime that we do need to talk about. You send them into the arms of RoboCop, not B-minus mall security. And I'm sorry to say, I said I'd get real, Learn the lesson of Obama. Obama deported more people than any previous president. He spoke frequently and full-throatedly about, quote-unquote, border security. And the fact is that Trump came into office by shit-talking Mexicans, right? Because Obama helped elevate the notion that the border was insecure. If we elevate the notion that police require greater resources, then what we are doing is we are handing Republicans a club and hoping they don't hit us with it. And so what do we do? We recognize that people's actual hunger is for safety. What people want is to feel safe. They have been taught, and when I say they, I wanna be clear, I mean, across the board, this is also true of African-American respondents. Again, I wish this weren't true, but the data are there. People have been taught to make a linkage between feeling more safe and increased policing. But, and, but, but what, what I, I just have to say this real quick is that, but we know fundamentally that that is not true. That when you that when you go into <laughs> the wealthiest and most secure environments, right? When I I grew up in suburban Long Island, an hour and a half 
east of New York City. I never saw a cop in my suburban areas. What I saw were sidewalks and tree-lined streets and country clubs and, you know, and, and parks and recreation centers and all of these things. So even when we say, oh, but we know that crime is a real problem, the reality is, is that social safety nets are not available. The reality is, is that we don't resource these communities that experience crime, giving people no choice but to commit crime in order to have the bare minimum of their lives met, right? Their basic needs. And so I'm always so confused how people still say like, oh, we need more cops. But I'm like, hey, Karen and Chad and Chet, how many cops do you see every day in your suburban community patrolling or standing out in front of your children's bus stop in the same way that they do in in Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn, right? Like you don't. So how do we shift that narrative that we know is a lie that both parties, and this is when I will say both sides of them, that both parties feed into? Mm. Yeah. Spot on, 100%. I hope it's clear. When I was saying that people make that connection, that doesn't mean because it's true. Right. I'm simply yeah. attesting to right. what people are doing. That's a perception. Everything you said. Yeah, that's a perception. And it is a widespread perception. That is yeah. all I'm saying. Not that I think that that is accurate. So what do you do? You do what we did in order to win in 2020 in Wisconsin, in order to make out with the significant margins that we did in Minnesota. And I mentioned those two places, obviously, Wisconsin, an incredibly important battleground. Also, coincidentally, my home state, Minnesota, another hotspot for the reasons that I've already cited. Again, just recently in a successful police reform ballot initiative in Cleveland, Ohio. Why am I prefacing it this way? Because I want people to know I'm not talking bullshit here. I'm talking about actually winning. This works. I'm talking about hard places where we actually won this way. I am not talking about pie in the sky ideas. We don't have time for pie in the sky. We have to make people's lives better at this moment. And unfortunately, the vehicle we have to do so is Democrats. That's what we got. So what do you do? You say one of two things. You say, we know what keeps us safe. It's living in communities where we look out for our neighbors, where we have our needs met, where we have the services we need and our kids attend schools that we're thrilled to take them to in the morning. But today, a handful of politicians try to make us fear each other based off of what we look like or where we come from or what our accent so they can keep collecting kickbacks from private prison lobbyists and police unions Mm -hmm. who fund their campaigns. They hope that by turning us against each other, we'll look the other way while they take away resources from what any family needs of every color and every zip code. By joining together and demanding common sense solutions like gun safety measures, like the social supports that all of us need, we can make this a place where all of us are safe and all of us make it home to our loved ones every night. It's that, but cop yet edited down. So it's, we know what keeps us safe, or it's the message that we utilized in Minnesota, which was fund our lives, which again Mm. was, Mm. this is what Mm -hmm. we're for. This is where we want our money to go. This is what we need to deliver. The other thing that I would add, and I know this is a very long answer, but when you actually do focus groups, when you actually listen to people, 
across this country of every demographic stripe. And when you actually do organizing, do you know what we hear over and over and over again in Black communities about police? What we hear over and over again, I would crystallize down to the phrase, we want police to come when we call and to get off our backs. Mm. That is what Black voters tell us over and over and over in different permutations. That's so sort basically of my... serve and protect. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, basically, the thing that they have on the side of their cars that said, you know, like, Serve particularly us, in New York. Protect us. Yeah, it's like courtesy, yeah. courtesy, respect, and something else. And I'm like, courtesy? Really? That's what you think NYPD is doing for black and brown folks? So, okay. So that's the message, right? It's we know what keeps us safe, blah, 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 blah. But today, the people who are sworn to serve and protect us often not only do not act in our interest, but actually target, detain, and Mm -hmm. kill our Black and brown neighbors. We can make this a place of equal justice for all. So it's, again, always calling up first that higher order value, then introducing the problem second, ascribing motivation and sealing the deal, coming back to whatever the call to action, the demand, the ask is as one of cross-racial solidarity. Anand, before we talk about voting rights, if if you had to give like a three-word slogan, right? So everyone now knows defund the police. Now Democrats brilliantly in the self-sabotage said fund the police. Does And this is me because you've done the research on this. Does reform the police work or should police even not be mentioned in the slogan? In a three-word slogan, Yay. you definitely don't want 33% of the slogan to be police. Okay. <laughs> because what happens oh, with man. that is, hey, have you thought about the police? Did you think about the police? Have mm. I made you think about the police? Have you thought about the police some more? You know what you should do? You should think about the police. And so that is why we used Fund Our Lives. Because again, you want, you know, it's just very simple. When you take your kid to a swimming pool, if the lifeguard yells, don't run at the kid, they're going to run either out of defiance or because you literally yelled, run at them. That's why a competent lifeguard yells, walk. You need to tell people what you want them to do. Mm. Not what you don't want them to do. Yeah. Yeah. Oh no, my yeah. god! It's the it's the logic for me, and that I'm just confused. I'm like confused about why we as a party can't get here. Like because we overthink. Because we know. overthink. I think we get nerdy and wonky, and you know, people laughed at Donald Trump and in 2016 and Steve Bannon. I'll tell you, man, those make America great again on a red hat, a sea of hats, simple slogan. It's but dumb, it, but effective. But effective. Is, is it fair or not? If, if, from your perspective, for Democrats to fall on the idea that, well, our tent is just too big, right? Mm. We have too many people in order for us to mesh to message correctly, because this is what they say. They say Republicans, you know, they're only looking at one demographic and then to peel off the percentage of black and brown that will be just enough. Right. And then they turn around and, and their, and their biggest statement is always our tent is too big. What's the response to that, which is also a lie. 
the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Yeah. So the response to that is, again, as is probably clear throughout this conversation, that I am a like diehard, firm believer in values-based messaging. And if you look at the campaigns that we have won around the world, which is you know, the risk of obnoxiousness, what my podcast is about. Each episode is a campaign we won somewhere in the world and how we did it. So you look at Jacinda Ardern, for example, New Zealand. I used to live in Australia, worked in New Zealand. And it's a it's a long, fascinating, it's an incredible story. She became the candidate six weeks before the election. The wow. previous guy was like, peace out, slogans made, signs done, ads done. You want to talk about fucking stress. It's like, oh, we have a new candidate. It's this woman. Her slogan was, let's do this. In Ireland, the abortion referendum, together for yes, I just told you, fund our lives. I just told you, we know what keeps us safe. A values-based message that speak, fight for 15, love is love. Mm. There are things that we can say that tap into what we do share in common. Because the truth is that despite the white supremacy and the patriarchy and everything that has been deliberately constructed in order to cage, control, oppress, make life harder for black folks, for brown folks, for women, for LGBT, you know, go on and on. Most people actually do want pretty similar things. That's the astounding thing. Mm. Most people do actually want to be paid enough to put food on the table and be home in time to eat it. It's Mm. really not that complicated. And when we speak at the level of those overarching values and make clear precisely who the villain is without repeating their claims and describe motivation, say why they're doing it, that it's a form of distraction, that it's to hide their Mm -hmm. actual agenda, that it's to enable them to give kickbacks, that the racial scapegoating is in service of plutocracy. Mm-hmm. Right. It's Heather McGee's point that obviously racism most directly impacts people of color. Duh. But it also is the way it's the gateway drug. If they can get you to point your finger at somebody at else. the brown guy, you won't yep. point it at the at bad them. guy. Come on. Divide and conquer. You know, with, with that, 
with that, and, and, and we have to talk about this value-based messaging crises, the biggest crisis, one of the biggest crises for our democracy is voter suppression. We had Absolutely. a January 6th violent insurrection. We have a yep. memo literally written by John Eastman, a right-wing attorney, that talked about how to do a coup. There was a failed coup attempt. That coup attempt has not stopped. It's a slow-moving coup where Donald Trump and his compatriots are openly telling us, like very helpful Bond villains, exactly how they plan on overturning the election in 2022 and 2024. Without voting rights, and you might disagree with us, there's nothing. And so how do you make this broad-based appeal to light the fire up people's butts to say, yo, Democrats, you can't just give a one-line throwaway sentiment in the State of the Union about voter suppression. This is everything. And the voting rights in particular of your base, your choir, are under attack. And we have to unite against this threat if we want to save democracy. What's the message? Yeah, so I absolutely agree. And in fact, I spend, I would say, most of my time right now, and that's been true for at least the last year or 18 months, actually since since right after the post-election when I began to engage really deeply and seriously in work around how we talk about voting and what's going on in states and all of it. So this is definitely where my head is at. And what I would say first and foremost is that the freedom frame, it, not for nothing, and it really, it's not accidental, it was very deliberate. When um, what was the For the People Act got changed and became a new act and they needed a name for it, they very intentionally, with help and support, named it Freedom to Vote. Mm. Freedom is the value that across demographic groups, age groups, race, et cetera, geography, people most closely associate with the United States of America. And the right has owned freedom or attempted to claim that they own freedom forever and ever and ever, when in fact it is a contested concept. There is absolutely left-wing freedom, the freedom riders, freedom summer, freedom to marry. It is the core of so many progressive arguments. It's that whole freedom from, freedom to FDR thing, right? So first of all, not calling it uh, voting rights, but rather the freedom to vote. And making clear mm -hmm. that the freedom to vote is how we have the freedom to thrive. Without the freedom to vote, there are no other freedoms. Right. So making that really, really crystal clear, because what we do see in our research, and you know, this is real talk, right? This is what happens when you actually listen to and do explorations with American voters. It's not the happiest story right? It's, it's, it's not a way to be made happy. Watching focus groups is not a pick me up. I, I promise you. It's a masochistic um, exercise. Yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. It's, it's not the best. I'm glad I you're doing like, it and not us. Yeah. And not us. I'm like, can we, could we recruit, I don't know, like Kiwis. Could we like maybe get some <laughs> other people into these focus groups? And all of my clients are like, no, we have to do focus groups about America with American voters. I'm like, shit. Um, so we have to connect voting back to pocketbook issues. Otherwise, sadly, it is too esoteric, too not immediate, too I'm still trying to fill up my gas tank and I'm still trying to actually pay the bills because, you know, not for nothing, people's lives are incredibly difficult and purposefully so, right? Thank you, capitalism. And mm -hmm. thank you, 1%. Mm -hmm. And so what that means is that what the message has to do is say, for example, in America, we value our freedom. 
the freedom to have an equal say in the decisions that impact our lives, like the jobs that we can have, the wages we get paid, and the schools our kids attend. But today, a handful of politicians, or but today, the MAGA faction. Mm-hmm. I like that better. But today, the MAGA faction is taking away our freedom to vote so that they can rule over us and rule only for the wealthy white few. Mm. In America, we believe that voters pick our leaders. Our leaders do not pick which voters to heed and which to silence. But this MAGA faction, because they know they cannot win more of our votes, are determined to keep us from voting. So it's really rendering clear why it is they're doing this, what they're in pursuit of, and again, the economic endgame for them, that it is about their ability to rule for the wealthy white few. In order for people to connect that back, the voting thing, which I agree with you is the foundation, to the stuff that is top of mind for them, for which you know, I completely understand. Like, if you have more months than check, then you're thinking about the groceries. Yep. Danielle, but, I mean, this, you know, we're not crazy. I'm not done all the work. I know. And I'm like, and I'm like, look, we 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 say all this stuff and I and we don't have the data like you do. And I just thought there for a second if I might flex, I'm like, we're not crazy. We're not. <laughs> Listen to that. Like, but also, this is it's not impossible. Right. Like right. What, no. what you are articulating is not impossible to do. There is just no sense of urgency and desire by those in the Democratic leadership to do so. And the will even just your your switch of language. Right. Because on here we continually talk about Republicans. We talk about Trumpism. When you said MAGA faction. Right. Yeah. It, it and I, I, I stood up a bit like I sat I sat up a bit because then it allows Republicans, right, those who say, well, not all Republicans. Well, if you're not a part of the MAGA faction, then I'm not talking about you. And I also then do not do not have to make a numerical value in saying that it's just a handful of people when we know that it's an entire party. But when you say MAGA faction and then you also use the word rule, rule over you, right, it harkens back to what? The purpose of white ancestors fleeing on the ships in order to get to America to to move away from being uh, from the king's rule. Right. It harkens back to that time. And so, yeah, I, I just I, I, I it drives me insane that this is not that hard, that messaging is not difficult, that the tent is not too big, that there aren't the, there aren't too many people of color that are out here screaming for our rights, that you just don't know how to talk to us. And so by that virtue, we're just not that into you. And that's going to be the end, the, the ending of America's story. And let's just be clear. I mean, there are so much to say about what you just said. So something I often say to people is a political party courts your vote, a faction, an authoritarian faction tries to keep you from voting. Mm. What is the Republican Party? So, yeah, I do use MAGA faction all the time. I try to make that linkage back to Trump, but not just center it on Trump, because, of course, Trump is not running. And we need to make it clear that that stain has littered, you know, the vast majority of the party for all the reasons that you say. I lost my train of thought. Crap. 
but you're going to yeah. edit this part out. Yeah, we'll edit it. Don't worry. <laughs> don't worry. Because I don't know what just happened. Because I got all excited all about it, Danielle. No, um, I'm just having a COVID moment. Uh, Danielle, you were talking about yeah, rendering it clear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I also talk all the time about they want to rule over us and not represent us. These are all very deliberate choices in language. Um, the question of whether it's hard or not, et cetera. I mean, you know, obviously I like to think that like I do a lot of work and I spend a lot of time and I have a lot of deep thoughts and like we test all this stuff and we test it over and over again. But unless and until you have a theory of change, Mm. Mm -hmm. unless and until you understand that a message is like a baton that has to be passed from person to person to person, and if it gets dropped anywhere along the way, it is by definition not persuasive. Unless and until you have things that you are for, that you can present to voters, then you, by definition, aren't going to be able to come up with a message because if what you're trying to do, if you believe that the way to approach political communication is as some sort of hot dog vendor problem where you're just looking to, you know, where are people? I'm going to meet people where they are in the center and whatever it is they already think, I'm going to say that thing over and over to them. That is such a fundamental misunderstanding of the way that people come to political judgments. Because number one, like I said before, those people in the center, they're not fixed. They change their minds depending on what they hear repeated over and over again. And number two, if you want people to come to your cause, you need to be attractive. And that means I actually, you know, my my colleague Jen Ancona and I, we have coined the term magnetism for our theory of persuasion and turnout. Magnetism being the idea that you actually need to attract people to your cause, and that means that you need to have a polarity. Your opposition, the people who fundamentally disagree with you, should dislike what you're saying. Otherwise, what are you saying? You are either saying puppies are cute, you're saying nothing, you're not engaging in a political argument, or you are inadvertently repeating your opposition's talking points, thereby actually helping them Because you are driving people, those conflicted people in the middle, into their worldview. You're saying don't be woke and don't be progressive. I think that's what you're saying, Anat. I'm kidding. Oh, good. (laughs) (laughs) And throw them under the bus. Everything, Anat, that you have offered is so incredibly clear that the only hope that we have is that everyone is listening to your podcast, that Democrats (laughs) are listening to this messaging and that, you know, what, again, what it is that they are offering to us is honestly just not the truth, which is that it's just too hard, right? Like, and that fear mongering is easier. Fear mongering is easier, but so is actually trying to speak to the people who consistently show up to you in a way that they can actually understand you and, and are excited to vote for you and until we connect those dots yeah until we connect those dots like where we are we're on the countdown the countdown to our demise um folks thank you for listening to democracy ish i'm danielle moody i'm mujahat ali and you can listen to our guest anat shankar osorio on her podcast words to win by and where else can they find you anat 
They can find me on Twitter at Anatosaurus, where, you know, sometimes I engage as, uh, engage in do as I say, not as I tweet. Sometimes I will go off message when I get too angry. But most of the time, I try to practice what I preach and, and actually use good messaging and not engage in bad habits. Wonderful. Thank you for trying to help save our democracy. Thanks for taking the time. And until next week, Danielle, what do you have to say? I just say, you know, keep churning, folks. Keep hoping, keep protesting, keep staying sane. We'll make it. Inshallah. Inshallah.